The information contained in this podcast is for general information purposes and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. This is In The Know, a monthly investment podcast brought to you by Magellan Asset Management, experts in global investing. We bring you timely, unique and thought-provoking insights to help you make sense of today's investment landscape. I didn't know how to start an exchange. I just assumed you would start it on a computer. And so not knowing how to do it, I found a company that was essentially going bankrupt called the Continental Power Exchange, located in Atlanta, Georgia, and convinced the owners that I would buy it for essentially nothing, but then I would assume the $2 million of debt that they had, which is the real cost of the company. And it I, sounds better that you just bought it for a dollar, Jeff. I know, doesn't it? <laughs> By the way, I gave no personal guarantee, so my assumption of debt had very little standing. I thought my lawyer said, you're taking a huge risk. I said, I think I'm taking a $1 risk. Honestly, I'll just put the company into bankruptcy. And he said, well, you have reputational risk. And I said, nobody knows who I am. I don't have a reputation. That's Jeff Sprecher, founder, chairman and CEO of the Intercontinental Exchange, or ICE as it's known. Jeff has transformed a small technology network serving the US power industry in the late 1990s to a now $65 billion global enterprise, operating exchanges and clearing solutions for markets around the world. It owns the New York Stock Exchange. His latest focus? Transforming and digitizing the US mortgage industry. No small task. The remarkable development of ICE has been driven by Jeff's visionary thinking and unwavering commitment to moving old analogue exchanges into efficient digital platforms and creating new markets globally. Starting with local US energy markets, ICE now operates in over 70 countries, and it all started with a single dollar transaction back in 1997. First, a welcome from Magellan's chairman and CIO, Hamish Douglas. Well, welcome back, everyone. My name's Hamish Douglas, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Magellan. This is our second edition in 2021 of Magellan in the Know podcast. I'm absolutely delighted and actually quite excited today to have, in my opinion, one of the great chief executives of the world and actually one of the great founders of the world. This is probably somebody who isn't in the front lines of the newspapers that has built one of the world's most incredible businesses. Today, I have with me Jeff Sprecher, who is the founder and also the chairman and chief executive of Intercontinental Exchange. It truly has been Intercontinental Exchange, one of the most amazing business success stories in financial markets. Back in 1997, Jeff bought a business called Continental Power Exchange for $1 and then listed the business that became Intercontinental Exchange on the New York Stock Exchange in 2005. And since 2005, over the past 15 years, that business has delivered compound returns of 17% per annum over 15 years, which is absolutely incredible. And from that $1 acquisition, Intercontinental Exchange now has a market capitalization of around $65 billion US dollars. So this is just an amazing success story. And Jeff, first of all, welcome. And I'd love you if you could provide a bit of background on yourself and maybe a brief summary of this incredible journey you've been on since 1997 and obviously a journey in your career before 1997. 
Well, first of all, thank you for having me, and thank you for flattering me with that uh, introduction. There's a part of me that says we should just end right now because I'm not sure I can get any any better. I'm not sure I can deliver uh, everything that you've held up with me. So I'm an engineer by education. I'm a chemical engineer, and I have a real interest in business. As a younger person, I was just a rabid reader of business periodicals and newspapers, and I just was always fascinated by business. So I decided to go to business schools to get a master's degree. And uh, while in school there, I met a fellow that had an idea to start a company to take advantage of the change in law in California that was going to try to stimulate the renewable energy industry. And it was essentially the first wave of deregulation of the electric power business in the United States. And I joined this guy in starting a company, not because I had any knowledge of the electric power industry and nor was I trying to be a green energy person with renewables. I just liked the idea of joining a startup. And I eventually bought him out and ran that business for many years, building, owning and operating electric power assets in California. And California at a period of time in the 90s decided to further deregulate And they wanted consumers, particularly industrial consumers, to be able to have a choice on who they would buy their electric power from. And they wanted people to have a choice on whether they wanted to generate their own renewable energy. And so uh, the state came up with something that only government can do, which was a formula on how to come up with the price of electric power. And as a result of that formula, the largest utility in the state, Pacific Gas and Electric, went into bankruptcy. And the governor of the state, Ray Davis, was recalled and thrown out of office because of constant rolling blackouts and brownouts. And so it was just obvious that what we needed was a free market to establish the true price of electric power. And so I started advocating government that the state should create an exchange or facilitate rules that would allow for an exchange. And by the way, Enron was the company that best took advantage of the rules in California and ultimately led to uh, charges against the company and their ultimate demise. Anyway, I got interested in how to start an exchange. I didn't know how to start an exchange. I just assumed you would start it on a computer. In the 90s, at that point, we all had network desktop computers. And so not knowing how to do it, I found a company that was essentially going bankrupt called the Continental Power Exchange, located in Atlanta, Georgia, and convinced the owners that I would buy it for essentially nothing, but then I would assume the $2 million of debt that they had, which is the real cost of the company. And It I, sounds better that you just bought it for a dollar, Jeff. I know, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I gave no personal guarantee, so my assumption of debt had very little, <laughs> very little standing. <laughs> my lawyer said, you're taking a huge risk. I said, I think I'm taking a $1 risk. Honestly, I'll just put the company into bankruptcy. And he said, well, you have reputational risk. And I said, nobody knows who I am. I don't have a reputation. So I learned as an outsider, and I think part of the success of the company was I learned about trading and running an exchange and building an exchange by not knowing anything about an exchange. So I think I just brought a completely different perspective to what was really going on in the market. And Jeff, how did you bring participants to that 
exchange. How did you encourage the market participants to actually come to that exchange? You know, that was the secret sauce. My partners and I, we talked to, I believe it was 105 or maybe it was 107 different players in the U.S. energy space, trying to get them to log on to this online exchange that we built and trade. And pretty much everybody told us the same thing, which was, once you get it up and running, come back and call on me. And so we couldn't figure out how to get it started. We had a lot of interest if it was operating, but we couldn't figure out how to get it started. It was over the New Year's, the Y2K New Year's. If you remember that, everybody thought the world was going to end because all computer systems were going to collapse. I was alone. I was a bachelor. And I was all by myself on that New Year's. And I was sitting there going to watch the clock strike midnight and see if we no longer had a banking system. And something about that night and the fact that it was a new millennia and everything that was going on with the conversation about potential failing technology. I just said, I have to do something to decide whether or not this company is going to be a boy or a girl. And I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do something. And so I went to Goldman Sachs and to Morgan Stanley in January of 2000. And I said, I have this idea. I can't get it started on my own. Would you guys help me? And they said, what we really need is a consortium of people. And we got the league table of the 13 largest participants in the energy space in the United States. And number one was Enron. So we crossed them off the list because by that time, people were nervous about Enron and what they were doing. And so we went with the next 13 and put them together in a consortium. And the answer to your question is, I offered to give them equity in the company. I didn't care about owning the company. I didn't actually start the company to run it. I didn't start it to make money on it. I started it because I thought the infrastructure in the state of California was wrong and it was impacting my business of building power plants. And I think it was because I had an altruistic view of what the company should be that it ultimately attracted these people and obviously diluted my interest down. But I cared more about the success of the company than I did about my own economics. And I mention that because I have a lot of entrepreneurs come to me asking for advice and showing me their business plan. And amazingly, whenever they're raising capital, the entrepreneur always ends up with 51% of the company. And when I ask them, well, how did you come up with a valuation that resulted in you with 51% of the company? They say, well, I I need 51% of the company because I need to control it. When I ask them, well, why do you need to control it? And they say, well, you know, if I don't control it, I might get fired or I might get kicked out of the company. And I always say, do you think you deserve to be kicked out of the company or deserve to be fired? Because that's a terrible reason to keep 51% of the company. And normally you can tell who cares about the passion of success and who's in a company simply for the economics. I mean, I become very successful, by the way, but it was as a result of the company on its own becoming successful and not because I financially engineered myself into a different position. Jeff, I couldn't agree with you anymore. You know, at Magellan, I co-founded with Chris Mackay, I own 12% of the company. We don't control the company. And I think that mindset that you have to entrench yourself is a terrible mindset. And it often leads to bad decision making where, you know, if you're a founder and you're not in control, you just have to 
keep focused and always grow the business and do the right thing by the clients and shareholders and so forth. And not that you feel that you've bought a fortress around yourself. I think that's a great lesson for anyone who's building a business in how to think. At the end of the day, you know, ICE is now an incredibly successful business. It's in the top two exchange businesses in the world. People may not know you own the New York Stock Exchange. You dominate energy markets in some of the very important energy markets around the world. You've got very important derivative positions in fixed income and markets and commodity markets around the world and, of course, equity markets around the world. So it's been an incredible journey. But when I look at your business and what you do compared to other traditional, let's call them exchanges or stock exchanges and derivative exchanges around the world, you know, you view the business quite differently to your competitors and you see business opportunities often when others don't see them. It would be great if you could outline for the listeners today how you see the opportunity for sort of transforming analog processes to digital processes and then create an exchange or a marketplace once you transform them into a digital process to undertake transactions. And then the data that you get from that exchange, you collect the data and then you digitalize that information. How do you see the digitalization and opportunities? Is this all over or is this not over at the moment? Interestingly, you elicited from your earlier question my history, and really it's the answer to your question. I didn't know how to start an exchange until we put together a consortium that all jumped in the pool together to start the business together. And I realized that it was about the network. It was about the 13 people that had agreed to connect to one another that made the company valuable. Up until that moment, it was a great technology capable of hooking people together, but the technology wasn't enough to attract the people. It was the fact that the network started with a core group that all came together. And so what I have done in the businesses that we're in is I look for businesses that have a network effect. And what do I mean by that? I mean that for every new participant that joins the network, it becomes more valuable to the people that are already on the network. So your product is constantly becoming more valuable to the customer base that you already have. In other words, it becomes very sticky. And secondly, we look for content that if you put that content on the network, you can sell that same content many, many times over to everybody on the network. So build it once and sell it many times. And that is what allows the business to compound. The success that you mentioned of this business that's compounding is really the ever-growing network that continues to become bigger and bigger and more and more valuable. It is what makes Amazon valuable. It is what makes Netflix valuable. It is what makes Facebook valuable. The great value creation companies of this particular technology boom are network companies. And Jeff, you may be giving some people some secrets away of what we kind of <laughs> look for if you look at businesses. Just the nature of networks where they become strongly reinforcing. Would you agree that once they're established, these sort of segments of where you create these powerful networks in that segment, market segment, it becomes a winner-takes-most or a winner-takes-all situation often when that happens, or would you not agree that happens in your space? I do think that 
that is the phenomena initially. In other words, Facebook survived and MySpace didn't. But I personally believe that there's an opportunity to build a MySpace right now because I don't think that the perch that these great network businesses sit on are insurmountable to the competitors. You had mentioned that some of my competitors who have great networks have not really added new content, have not really added new consumers. They haven't made the network more valuable. It's valuable and it has kind of a stasis, but they're not innovating enough to continue to make it more valuable, which to me means that a startup or an interloper who comes along and creates more interesting content can take it away. In other words, you and I lived, Hamish, you and I are old enough to have lived through the move from broadcast television to cable television, and now we see it going to streaming and the advent of Netflix. Technology can create the next network, and there's no reason that the companies that were big in broadcast when it was over the air shouldn't be the big streaming companies, but a lot of people that didn't continue to follow the technology curve got left behind. And so I look at some of the big network companies, including our own, and I'm saying, what is the disruptive force that's going to knock it off its perch? And so that keeps us motivated to constantly be innovating because I don't think the position we're in is particularly privileged if we're not doing that. And underneath that, Jeff, it sounds like you're a follower and a fan of Jeff Bezos. Using the words like stasis, it sounds like you want to keep that day one mentality that if you don't keep innovating, you don't keep improving the network, at the end of the day, there will be a change that happens. Your energy business will go into decline if you don't keep innovating and adding value to that network. Yeah, I would also just say that I earlier said that uh, I'm always skeptical when I meet an entrepreneur that wants to keep control of their company. And I think we just talked about a number of the best companies, the best performing companies where those entrepreneurs did keep control. So, uh, by the way, I think had they, regardless of what ownership stake they would have had in those companies, the shareholders would have been thrilled to keep those CEOs attached to the companies. But it's certainly not the case that trying to keep control is a negative for a company. And I think the point you're making is Jeff didn't retain control. He's kind of, him and Steve Jobs are almost unique in that regard. Maybe we could just talk about the data side of the business here, because obviously you've got a transacting marketplace that you get more and more users to that network. It becomes self-fulfilling. But the ability then to use the data people are regarding, or they call data the oil of the 21st century, how important is sort of data to your business model and then Obviously, it's recurring revenue, but as a valuable piece in the network itself. Yeah, it's incredibly valuable. For one thing, it is the content that you can put on the network that everyone who's on the network can digest. But just stepping back, you know, I just look at my own behavior now. And, uh, you know, it was only a few years ago that I would pick up the telephone to make an airline reservation or book a hotel room. And today we have all these apps that are allowing us to do these otherwise menial tasks. But behind that is an unbelievable amount of data and information that drives our decision-making and then the response that whoever we're communicating with gives us. And so I just saw, and I, you know, as we were building this company, that I was consuming more and more data. And we're at a point in my business where people will 
because they're managing risk and making decisions about trades or entering into a mortgage, which is just another large financial decision, people by nature want to have a lot of information and people are buying from us just as much raw information as they can get. And they're taking that raw information and doing things with it. I tend to believe that over time, the next consumer that will join the network isn't going to want raw information. They're going to want us to distill the raw information into a format that allows them to make a decision. In other words, spoon feed the information to me, tell me what I need. And I don't really care about what the raw materials are that you use to construct that decision. And so I do think that uh, algorithms that are digesting raw data and consumer-friendly apps that allow you to click a button and make a restaurant reservation without actually having to see the data and information behind it. That's the wave of the future. And so getting those apps to be good decision makers will take more and more and more information to become more and more accurate. And so the raw data will still be important, but I do think that ultimately it's the applications themselves that are gonna be the next wave. And in, in many industries, they are the next wave. Maybe I could move in a slightly different direction. And this is really about identifying new opportunities of transforming analog markets into digital markets. So how do you go about identifying a market that's analog that may be appropriate for your skill sets? Uh, Is it scale? Is it ease of getting the data? Is it complex? What are the things you look for? Your competitors aren't sort of, no one else has gone after the mortgage market like you have, which makes it quite unique. We couldn't be more excited about what you're doing there. But how do you go about as a mindset to even think about these sort of analog markets and there could be a real opportunity to bring your skills to bear here? It's kind of a two-step process. I think my company does one thing really well, which is to operate a network, which is largely, and I should just say the network that we operate that runs the New York Stock Exchange is not that much different than the network we operate to help a consumer get a mortgage. It's essentially a secure, connected environment and at the core of it is a database. And data and information are coming in and going out of that database and often being manipulated or cleansed or some other processes around that data to make it more valuable as it exits the database than when it came in. But it's essentially marshalling data and information in and out of a database. So we start with the premise of where are there vast pieces of information that if we moved them in and out of a database, would be our core competence. And that sort of leads you to, okay, where could there be a network or where is there a network that already exists that we could automate? But we start thinking about the network. If you can find an opportunity where the business is still analog and the network we're bringing is digital, you have this massive tailwind. I'm not sure you need it. I mean, I really do believe that that somebody could create a competitor to Amazon, and I believe somebody could create a competitor to Netflix, and I believe somebody can create a competitor to Facebook. In other words, markets that are already digitized wouldn't be easy, but I think you can already go into a digital place and be competitive. But if you have the added virtue of being in an analog marketplace that you can take digital, the tailwind is just so overwhelming. The adoption rate can pick up your version 1.0 doesn't have to be particularly perfect because you're competing against something that's 
a fax machine and a piece of paper and a quill pen. And so you could be a little more forgiving on version 1.0. If you're going to take on Facebook, your version 1.0, I would suggest, has to be pretty darn good. So we look for both. We look for a network where there's sort of an analog infrastructure. And that's my job. I mean, that's really what you pay me for as a shareholder is to be thinking about those things. And as you go through life, half the time success is about recognizing the opportunity and then taking the action to seize it. And that's just what I do for a living. And maybe, Jeff, we could just move on because I think it is such a great example of where you've seen opportunity where whether others haven't, is what you're doing in the US mortgage market. You've put a number of pieces together here. Obviously, it's originating a mortgage and completing and closing a mortgage has many counterparties involved, has lawyers, has brokers, has real estate agents, has banks, it has all these different users there. It's very expensive. It's very manual. So how did you see the opportunity there to try and create an exchange here And how large do you think this sort of opportunity could be? And could you really create this network here in this market? Yeah, one of the things I learned by running ICE as an early stage company is that interest rates are a driver of a tremendous amount of trading. There's the outright trading of sovereign debt, treasury futures here in the US. There is foreign exchange trading, currency trading, but where interest rates determine the flow of money with the so-called carry trade. Stocks themselves, which you are involved with, that have an interest component both in your cost of capital to invest in stocks, but also the inflation environment, which propels stocks. So I just had this instinct that interest rates were at the core of so many markets. And I said, where are there some interest rate markets that we should be focused on? And, you know, in the United States, where I'm located, the biggest single transaction that most couples or people will make in their life is the purchase of a home. And so it just seems so obvious that here's an interest rate market that affects any working consumer in the United States that wants to have home ownership. And honestly, you could say even renters are impacted by the cost of mortgage. So it just felt like it's completely untapped. And maybe, Jeff, you could just explain for our listeners what the mortgage process is and how analog it is and the components that you're bringing together to digitalize here. Yeah, as we started breaking down the process of an individual homeowner who enters into a mortgage transaction, we saw the obvious makings of a network. There's clearly the borrower and the lender. But when you peel back the process, there's the sale of a home potentially. And so there's a buyer's broker and a seller's broker that are tangentially involved in the transaction. People need to gather their income data to verify that for the lender. And so there's an employer. Often people have a lawyer. Often the lawyer requires, and depending on the laws, requires that there be a notary The lender may want proof of insurance, as you brought up earlier. We started to see that when a home is purchased and a mortgage is entered into, other things happen. The homeowner may want to go buy curtains, a new sofa. They may need a gardener uh, or lawn care. They may 
decide to add on to the house to add another bedroom before they move in. There are so many people that are touched by these transactions, none of which are together on any kind of network, all of which are probably linked by telephone calls and the yellow pages or the phone directory here. We just said, wow, there's an amazing network if you could get everyone around that transaction to convey information digitally. And the first thing you can imagine is just how you would not only lower the cost of the transaction, but compress the time that's involved in the decision making. In the United States, if you could get a mortgage done in 30 days, you'd be lucky. My colleague, Warden, who Hamish, you know, because he's our investor relations head, recently refinanced his mortgage with one of the major banks in the United States. And they asked him if he could send over a copy of his bank statements. And he said, well, I bank at your bank. And they said, I know, but it would be so much easier if you would just make a copy and send them to me as opposed to me trying to go through the internal machinations of the bank to look up your account. That's the state of the industry right now. So we just said, boy, what an amazing opportunity. And let's see if we can chip this apart and get the underpinnings of a network together. So just briefly, maybe, what are the components you put together? You bought a number of different pieces of the jigsaw puzzle here that's pretty unique. What have you put together to create this business? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that another thing that I've learned over time is that the matching of a buyer and a seller The matching of two people on a network who have transactional interests is the least valuable thing that the network does. Oddly, when I got into the exchange world, exchanges were open outcry exchanges with guys who wore funny jackets and stood around and flashed hand signals. And trading rooms, maybe even in your firm, are places where people gather and there's personalities and there's noise and cacophony around that. And a lot of people think that that's the value because it's the visual thing that kind of looks like a network. And it is a network, but the reality is matching a buyer and seller is one of the easiest things you can do online. I mean, all it takes is two people. And if they can find each other, they just say, oh yeah, I, I wanna sell, oh, I wanna buy. Okay, well, that's easy. And I would say, by the way, Amazon, you wanting to go buy a box of pens on Amazon, is an amazing transaction, but it's the least valuable thing Amazon does. You can find box of pens many places on the internet. It's all the logistical things behind that really make it sticky. And so we started in mortgage by thinking about where is the pain point and what would make the network really sticky. And we started at the back end of the mortgage process, which is once you have consummated a mortgage in the United States, you actually have to file it with the local registrar. And that normally is done by putting a big chunk of paper in a Federal Express envelope and sending it in. And we found a company that was automating that and we realized how valuable that was and we acquired it. Separately, I acquired a business called MERS, which is a terrible name, but it stands for the Mortgage Electronic Registry Service, where in the United States, all mortgages are given a MIN number, M-I-N, which stands for a mortgage identification number. And MERS provides the MIN, which means every mortgage that's registered in the United States comes to MERS and gets an ID number. And it's a very nominal cost, and it's a simple concept and a very simple business 
but almost every mortgage in the United States touches that company. And we said, my God, if we could take MERS, where every mortgage is coming to get an ID number and hook it to a back end where every mortgage has to be filed with a local registrant, think of how valuable that would be to the marketplace. And then if you have that, it's pretty easy to attract the buyer and a seller, the front end. Similarly, in an exchange, you know, I started actually by trying to match a buyer and a seller, but quickly realized that that was not that sticky and it wasn't that unique. And we went into clearing and settlement of trades, which is, I always tell people that we're early tech people that we started by building something that was like eBay, but we realized that the value was in PayPal and the settlement. And so it's the back end plumbing, it's the fulfillment side of these businesses that is real value added to the end user. If you make all the logistics go away with a mouse click, then buyers and sellers will want to come find each other. And that's essentially the logic of what we're doing and how we started in mortgage. And I would just say to you, what we have is have assembled so far, much of which was by acquiring these bits and bobs and then stitching them together. It's very powerful. It is something that I really believe, and I think you do by the comments you've made here, can have tremendous growth for years and years and years and a network that can become very large just because of the the number of people that are involved around a homeowner that is buying a house. And Jeff, I'm talking in the future, you'll have all the information on maybe in most mortgages that are written in the United States and digitalization of that marker and the provision of much better information to the financial markets on one of the largest components of fixed income in the United States is incredibly valuable for efficiency as well. So I don't think people quite realize that this is a very, very large scale industry that you're going after and it's very complex. And as you're saying, you're putting the back end logistics piece in place and that's the hard bit. Right, and in fact, what I described to you was the consumer network, but because we're in markets, there's a wholesale network that funds the banks that allows them to extend credit. And the better data you have on the consumer level and the faster that data can be compiled, you take risk out of the wholesale market. And it just has knock-on impacts that, it's what Frank Lloyd Wright said, which is I design a chair to fit in the room and then the room to fit in a home and a home to fit in a neighborhood and a neighborhood to fit into the environment. In other words, Frank Lloyd Wright said in divide, and, and by the way, I butchered that uh, quote, but he, he basically said by designing a chair, I'm actually designing the entire environment. And that's how I see this playing out. I'm glad it sounds like you see the same thing. I, I don't know where the limit of the universe is, but I can see that it's out there pretty far. And we're just right now designing the chair. And Jeff, do you think this is the biggest idea you've had so far on your journey? I do because only from the standpoint that uh, if you look at the companies that have really benefited from technology, really benefited the investors and the universe and the environment, they'd have a consumer footprint. And largely the markets that we've built, including even the New York Stock Exchange, is an institutional footprint. But the universe is so much bigger when you can marry institutions and consumers, which is what mortgage does. So it just feels like it could be very, very big and it could take us in places that 
we haven't even thought about. I've had some inbound calls from some very smart people who have said, have you ever thought about this, that, or the other thing around your network? We would love to talk to you about how to engage with you on that. And you're like, wow, you know, we were just trying to figure out how to send the mortgage to the registrant and get it filed and compete with the overnight mail. But a lot of third parties are bringing us some very, very unique ideas that that have to do with the fact that the consumer, as part of this massive transaction, has all kinds of other knock-on impacts and behavioral impacts that the data and information and access to that consumer could have on a network. I mean, who would have thought that Jeff Bezos selling books? Actually, I was inspired by him in that I used to think, boy, the reason Amazon as a bookseller is so successful is that we do judge a book by its cover. In other words, it's completely a commodity. And I didn't really care whether I bought the book on the internet or my neighborhood bookstore. I was going to end up with exactly the same book. But you would say, well, of course, a woman would never buy her wedding dress on the internet. That's a very customized, tangible, emotional purchase. Today, you know, millions of women are buying dresses and all kinds of clothes on the internet. And so Amazon found a way to take a commoditized business and just keep innovating around it. And I think that's what we have at Mortgage. And Jeff, the whole of the company started, and your career started in the energy business. Currently, energy, you know, excluding mortgage, has been your largest product line. And maybe it's a reason why the shares aren't rated more highly because people aren't yet extrapolating the mortgage business and people are focused on climate change and they're focused on stranded asset risk. And, and you know, if we're headed to net zero by 2050, are you going to have an energy business in the future? But your energy business just keeps powering on. So how do you regard when you look at your energy business, the trajectory of decarbonisation, renewables and everything else. How how do you sort of look at this energy business? It's been your whole career. Yeah, we got into the business by acquiring a company called the International Petroleum Exchange of London, which was the largest energy exchange in Europe. And at the time, it had four products that it traded, oil, natural gas, and some byproducts that came out of oil heating oil and, uh, and alike. Four products, and that was in uh, year 2001. And today we have a thousand, more than a thousand products. And if you say, well, what else? What were the other 900 plus products that grew? It is renewables, it is emission contracts, it is natural gas, both in gaseous form and liquid form. And what you've seen is we've been able to evolve what we call the quote-unquote energy business, into a much broader business. And if you look last quarter, our fastest growing product was natural gas in Europe. Well, why is that? Well, Europe is trying to get away from coal. They have a conscious effort to lower their carbon footprint. And an interim stop along the way as they electronify cars and what have you is to move from coal to natural gas in power generation. The second fastest growing product we had was carbon, essentially carbon trading to meet the UN mandates, which is helping to move away from coal and provide green financing, essentially. So the energy business in some areas, let's call them the westernized areas of the world, are quickly moving towards renewable carbon trading footprint. 
We've also announced that later this quarter, we're going to launch a new exchange with the Abu Dhabi government, which is going to trade a grade of Middle East crude oil that largely is being consumed by China. So at the same time, we have on one end of the spectrum, people moving away from carbon-based footprint. You also have the growth of China, which is just consuming energy in any form that it can get it and is desperate to get Middle East crude. And the Middle East is desperate to, in the case of this exchange, to put a, uh, a market-based price on its product. So there's a bit of a duality around that business. We're neutral. An exchange is essentially a neutral party to where the market goes. And in fact, it's important that we stay neutral so that buyers and sellers feel confident on the network. But we just keep rolling out new products that the market keeps telling us, this is how we see the future of energy. And this is how we think we're going to need to manage risk and consume it. And it just seems almost endless, honestly. And so, Jeff, I think I'd come back and say the energy business in your mind has a very vibrant future because there is going to be traded energy around the world for as long as humankind is here. The nature of what that energy will change, but not the need to hedge and trade and deal in whatever the energy product is. So if you think about it, if you just wanted to protect your oil business and that's all you ever did, of course, Right. In that stasis mindset, it will decline, but that's just not how you think. It's that's not how right. Bezos selling books. He decided uh, to sell wedding dresses. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that was a great example. And and you're moving on to selling wedding dresses in your in your energy business. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, Jeff, I think we're probably now out of time. I could talk for at least another hour. I always enjoy talking to you, but Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time. I think all the listeners would have got an enormous insight out of that well beyond your business in terms of how to think about entrepreneurism, uh, how to think about ownership if you're an entrepreneur, how to think about sort of networks and data and a whole series of topics. So Jeff, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. And from us, we're really enjoying being shareholders in the company and we look forward to being on this journey with you. Thank you, Hamish. It's nice to be honored to be with you and to have you uh you know, disseminate my thoughts. It's really quite flattering and I appreciate it. A pleasure. That was Hamish Douglas talking with Jeff Sprecher, founder, chairman and CEO of Intercontinental Exchange. We trust you've enjoyed this episode of Magellan In The Know. Join us in a month's time for the next episode. For more information on upcoming episodes, visit magellangroup.com.au slash podcast, where you can also sign up to receive our regular investment insights program. Thanks for listening.